Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, let's start this week in New York. Uh, We've talked some about the civil action that's been brought by the New York Attorney General uh, against the Trump Organization, alleging that they committed fraud by making various misrepresentations of the values of properties that Trump and the Trump Organization own. To take one very simple and colorful example, they claimed that his penthouse apartment in Trump Tower was 30,000 square feet when it's really 10,000 square feet and therefore inflated the valuation by approximately three times uh, when uh, making financial claims to parties like insurers and banks. And so as part of this uh, as part of this lawsuit, there was a, a, a motion brought by the attorney general to appoint a monitor. Basically, if the Trump organization was going to make significant transactions or move assets out into other entities, they wanted a, they, a monitor to tell the, that they have to tell when they're doing those sorts of things so the AG can watch them and make sure they don't pull any funny business trying to hide assets. And there's, a, uh, there's an order that came down from Judge Arthur Engeron, uh, I, don't, I don't know if we know how to pronounce that, granting this request from the attorney general for a monitor. So basically, someone's going to supervise the Trumps when they move their assets around now? So a monitor is someone who has a role, a court-appointed role in a company that is not as extensive a, as a receiver. You might have heard a receiver, and that's someone who basically takes over operation of the company completely, responsible for all the decisions and all for the income and expenses. A monitor is more limited. A monitor gets access to all the books and records. Uh, the monitor is going to review and approve all financial statements made to the government or to lenders or insurers or people like that. And the monitor has to supervise and approve any movement of assets, sale of assets, things like that. The reason the New York Attorney General went in this direction recently, apart from generally the fact that Trump has been extremely uncooperative in this case, is that we saw Trump start to do some of the things consistent with beginning to hide assets. Like, remember, creating Trump Organization 2 in Delaware. (laughs) Uh, Other things consistent with him planning to move assets to avoid the impact of any loss in this case. And at the hearing on this last week, Trump's lawyers were really very strongly pushing Trump's narrative, which is this is a political persecution, and the attorney general is just trying to get publicity for her reelection, and he's being you know abused for political reasons. It did not go well for them. Uh, mm. This order back from the judge is pretty brutal to Donald Trump and his organizations. It points out that. Um, The attorney general submitted tons of admissible evidence about what Trump had been doing and the lies and says uh, defendant have failed to submit an iota of evidence or even an affidavit from anyone with personal knowledge rebutting the attorney general's comprehensive demonstration of persistent fraud. That is not a good sign when the judge starts saying things like that or dropping in uh, references to things like, according to the testimony of Trump organization CFO and now confessed felon, Alan Weisselberg. (laughs) It's not a little clause that you want in the judge's order. The judge found that there was overwhelming evidence of fraud, that the attorney general had met her burden to show she needed a preliminary injunction that would restrict the organizations and stop them from continuing to submit fraudulent statements and also from moving assets. And so the court issued this broad order that makes them cooperate with this monitor, turn over all their financials, give notice before attempting to sell any assets or move any assets, and really very much restrict their ability to to hide the ball now. 
I was interested in one thing in here because we, we talk a lot about how a lot of white collar offenses have really high intense standards that you have to show not only that the defendant did something, but that they knew what they were doing when they were doing it. And so this, this is not a criminal case. This is a civil case. So it makes sense that the standards would be different. But I thought it was interesting here that one of the things the judge says is even if these false representations were made by mistake, if they were inadvertent, that's still fraud under this statute or it still can be fraud under the statute because you don't have to intend to make the false statement in order to be liable for for civil fraud here. I was surprised by that. Well, that's because it's sort of a narrow area of government power. It's not prosecutorial power. You're not trying to put someone in jail. And it's not typical civil power. It's more of a supervisory function. And the interest is in preventing the public or businesses from being misled. So it's kind of at the area where we have the maximum amount of of care for whether or not people are going to be misled and not as much care for whether the people doing the misleading meant to do so. However, the judge made it pretty clear that it would have been sufficient even if you had to show bad faith, saying basically uh, it's simply not credible that Trump uh, didn't understand that his apartment was 10,000 square feet um, or 30,000 square feet, even if the mirrors do make it seem real roomy. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was pretty clear (laughs) that that was fraud. Yeah, I mean, and another thing that the judge discusses in here is one of the rebuttals that did come from the Trump organization was essentially that Trump hasn't defaulted on any of these loans at issue that he received based on the financial representations that he made, at least that's what they say. There's also, I mean, there's an allegation in here that they showed these statements to Zurich Insurance Company and that that was a factor that caused Zurich to renew a policy. But the judge says that you don't need to show that anybody was harmed, uh, that the government has a broad interest in causing people to make true statements of financial condition when they are engaged in financial transactions. You don't need to show that there's some party that actually lost money because of the statement uh, for the Trump organization to be in trouble here. Yeah, and that's true of the criminal context, too. So if you lie to a bank to get a loan, uh, that's a crime even if you didn't default on the loan. So that's not a particularly unusual point. It's one that more often comes up in what the remedy is uh, or what the punishment is uh, for the particular violation. A couple other interesting things in here. One uh, is that uh, one of Donald Trump Jr.'s defenses is supposed to be that he doesn't know anything about GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles. And that uh, therefore, you know, it's not it's not his responsibility to know whether something was uh, was consistent with gap. Uh, The court's not going for that. No, the court says that Donald Trump Jr. repeatedly signed documents saying that he had fulfilled his responsibilities based on his corporate role under accepted accounting principles. And so, you know, either he's lying when he said that or he's lying when he says he doesn't understand gap. So it's a problem either way. Now, I would say it's also something of a problem to appoint Donald Trump Jr. to apply gap at all. Well, he did go to Wharton. Well, but so did Donald Trump. Uh, (laughs) And um, I'm not sure if he's a particular credible uh, in terms of uh, accounting expertise. And there's also one interesting bit of news in here, uh, which is because we we knew that Donald Trump had sat for a deposition for this. um, And now we learn that Donald Trump took the fifth 400 times in that deposition when asked uh, questions about various matters that the the attorney general is looking into here. And again, because this is a civil case, uh, the court is able to draw a negative inference from that. It's not like in a criminal case where they can't hold it against you when you take the fifth. 
Absolutely. So uh, the court here does draw the inference that this suggests there is fraud and consciousness of fraud. Actually, I mean, it sounds like a big number, but 400 invocations of the fifth is not necessarily a huge thing. Uh, you have to, you can't just say, I'm going to take the fifth today and not answer anything. You got to assert it to each individual question. And there can be hundreds or thousands of questions in a deposition. So uh, that's more of a big headline grabber, but it basically just means he very aggressively asserted the fifth in a deposition that was very detailed. So this is not a great outcome in a New York court. Uh, for Donald Trump in this New York civil case. He's also, he, he's trying to sue the attorney general of New York in court in Florida. Yes. How does that work? Uh, it does not. It's about as effective as suing uh, the attorney general in uh, some sort of television court or possibly a food court. Um, <laughs> he's filed this state court action against New York attorney general Let Letitia James, uh, who he's recently been referring to frequently as Peekaboo James, probably in a reference to a ancient ethnic slur. And he's asking a Florida court to enjoin her from seeking his Florida estate plan, his revocable trust, uh, which has various privacy rights under Florida law. And this lawsuit is really uh, very much from the um, lawsuit as press release tradition. So it is a uh, very much a Trump-pleasing document. It praises him effusively and nauseatingly. Uh, it talks a lot about how uh, biased uh, Attorney General James is and how terrible she's treated him and how the judge has never ruled for him on anything and he must be corrupt too, <laughs> and so on and so forth. It is, it is a unseemly and embarrassing document, and it has functionally no chance of success. Uh, one state's court is not going to enjoin an official proceeding in another state. And in fact, I think they probably filed this in Florida state court because it would get an even quicker and ruder reception in federal court because the, mm -hmm. the norms and rules, the abstention doctrines in federal court are even more strong and powerful. There's some reporting from the New York Times and others that there was a lot of internal dissension in the Trump team about this. Yeah, I want to read the lead of this New York Times story because it's pretty remarkable. It says, a tirade of a lawsuit that Donald J. Trump filed on Wednesday against one of his chief antagonists, New York Attorney General, was hotly opposed by several of his longstanding legal advisors who attempted an intervention hours before it was submitted to a court. Those opposed to the suit told the Florida attorneys who drafted it that it was frivolous and would fail, according to people with knowledge of the matter. The loudest objection came from the general counsel of Mr. Trump's real estate business, who warned that the Floridians might be committing malpractice. Nonetheless, the suit was filed. So it's first of all, it's, it's remarkable to do something that becomes so controversial within your legal team. And it's, an, it's additionally remarkable for that to end up in The New York Times. It is. And uh, the fact that it was leaked suggests there is quite a bit of discontent and there may be attorneys who do not want to be associated with this nonsense because it is uh, probably malpractice and it is probably unethical and sanctionable. So Chris Kyes, who you might remember is the man smart enough to demand $3 million up front before getting on Team Trump, is reportedly one of the ones who strenuously opposed it. And that's not surprising because he has a background that is, you know, not ludicrous, that, that reflects actual judgment and experience. Uh, but Trump always has a core of attorneys who tell him what he wants to hear, you know, the sort of the Sidney Powell type figures. And those apparently were the ones telling him, yeah, you know, do this uh, broadside against the attorney general in Florida State Court, see how it turns out. It may be 
as often is the case, primarily intended as, uh, you know, a base-pleasing, fundraising, public relations move, as opposed to anything that they genuinely think they're going to get anything, which they're not going to get anything. I find it remarkable that this got out into the press because it, if it was an attorney who leaked it to the press, that would be a violation of the attorney-client privilege and also of client confidentiality obligations, aside from the privilege, right? It absolutely would. But there would also be non-attorneys, I guess, uh, p- business people within the Trump organization who might be privy to the argument that happened among the attorneys? Yes. You know, I, I think in the past we've seen indications that email traffic within the Trump organizations does not have very good operational security, and it's not unusual for them to be copying non-lawyers who are not within the zone of privilege on legal emails. So it's entirely possible one of those people leaked it, uh, or just maybe one of the lawyers. You're right, it would be completely unethical. Let's talk about Tom Barrick. Tom Barrick uh, is a, uh, a wealthy businessman uh, and a close associate of Donald Trump's, uh, spoke uh, introducing him at the 2016 Republican convention, was offered an ambassadorship at one point in the Trump administration. Uh, so Tom Barrick was put on trial by the Justice Department for nine counts, uh, basically accusing him of conspiring to be an agent of the United Arab Emirates in the United States without registering. So this is this is not the Foreign Agents Registration Act. This is a closely related but different law. Correct. Uh, This is Title 18, United States Code, Section 951. And the key difference is it prohibits being an unregistered agent of a foreign government. So here, it has to be a foreign government or a foreign official where you're agreeing to be the agent. It can't be like a foreign company business or, you know, billionaire or something like that. And uh, it's related to but different than the Foreign Agent Registration Act. This is the one that uh, the Russian agent Maria Botina pled guilty to, if you recall her. And it's been used successfully over the years occasionally. Uh, but this was a, a huge setback for the Justice Department. Right, because Barrick was acquitted. He was straight up acquitted. So was his assistant, uh, Matthew Grimes. This was a case where the Justice Department definitely went all in on their theory and their devotion of resources and that sort of thing. And uh, it just fell flat. It fell flatter, you know, than a than a Durham indictment. <laughs> The fact pattern is basically that Tom Barrick took certain actions that were favorable to the United Arab Emirates, uh, you know, encouraging administration officials to make certain kinds of statements and that sort of thing. And that the key question in the trial was why he did that. And basically, he successfully argued that he was not doing this because he was an agent of the UAE, that he was doing it basically to try to build his own business, that he was trying to woo the UAE. They pointed out that he also took various actions on behalf of Qatar, which is a Gulf state that is quite hostile to the UAE, which would be inconsistent with the idea that he was an agent of the United Arab Emirates. And so it's basically the government needed to prove certain things about exactly why Tom Barrick did what he did, and they failed to do that. Right. So the the idea is that to violate Section 951, it's not enough that you just did something uh, at someone else's behest or that it helped them. You have to show that you were their agent, meaning that you agreed to act under their direction or control in what you were doing. And Barrick's argument sort of leans into the sleaziness of the whole situation just to say, look, I'm I'm trying to fundraise. I'm looking for money from people. I'm trying <laughs> to please them. So I'm doing some things for them, but I'm not under their direction or control. You know, it's a really high 
proof standard uh, because, in effect, it goes to, you know, why they were doing it and did they have ulterior motives and were they really doing it under someone's control or under their own theory and their own motives. And, th and that is not easy to prove, uh, particularly when you've got a competent defense team on the other side, which which here he clearly did. So th this is a, a major setback for the Justice Department's recent push towards prosecuting these types of cases about being a foreign agent. And it's quite different from the Butina case, obviously. The Butina thing was kind of funny because she was kind of inept, but it's also like she was a, a spy, more or less, within like the the sort of the, the standard understanding of what that would be. You know, Russian national who came here, sent here by their government to undertake certain actions related to U.S. politics. It's very different from being a businessman who has a wide variety of uh, of, of conflicting international business interests. Yeah, I mean, we we have a lot of discussion over the last few years over what amounts to influence peddling. And there's sort of a broad social consensus that it is sleazy and that we ought to be uh, more worried about it. And, you know, when is someone going to indict Hunter Biden for doing that and, and all this sort of thing. But the actual laws governing it are fairly narrow. And so a lot of things that we perceive as sleazy and that sort of there might be this sort of sentiment out there, this ought to be against the law, actually is not. Uh, the actual laws governing it are narrower than that. Tom Barrick was on the stand for a whole week, which we talk a lot about when it's a mistake to let the client talk. Is this I mean, this looks like an example of a case where they needed to put the defendant on the stand. Needed or at least thought uh, correctly that it was the best way to educate the jury on this theory. So you've got complex stuff here about why he was doing things. And it's a lot weaker just to say to the jury, well, you could just infer he might have been doing it for these other reasons. What if he were doing it for these reasons, but he doesn't get up there? That's a, a tougher lift uh, for the defense. The jury might have gone for it. This was a bold strategy, but it did get Tom Barrick able to speak directly to the jury to explain his version of why he did things. And no doubt the defense team spent a lot of time with him and decided that he was smart enough and had enough self-control that it wouldn't turn into a giant dumpster fire, as, as client testimony can, uh, and that he would be able to keep it together. That's a call that's going to vary not only with the facts of the case, but with the nature of your client and how hot-headed your client is, how good your client is under pressure, how much self-control they have, and your perception of how they're going to react in that high-pressure scenario of being on the stand, being cross-examined. got a sort of a tour of the eastern seaboard today. Let's let's go to Massachusetts now. A uh, federal judge in Massachusetts has dismissed a case that Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy brought against Insider and various employees of Insider for a series of stories containing allegations about his sexual behavior. Now, first of all, I think this is the first case that we've talked about on the show where I actually personally know some of the defendants. I was a journalist at Insider for a number of years. Henry Blodgett and Nicholas Carlson, uh, who, are, who are very senior folks over there, were named defendants in this case. And they prevailed on their motion to dismiss in this federal court. And so the, the stories at issue accused Portnoy of having sexual encounters with several women that, quote, started consensually but then turned violent and frightening beyond what they would have agreed to had they been asked, unquote. Uh, so Portnoy obviously alleges that these allegations are false, but he had to allege more than that in order to survive a motion 
motion to dismiss and actually get into court and have a trial to sue Insider. Uh, because Portnoy is famous, he's a public figure, and so he has to allege that Insider acted with actual malice, which is to say that they published these allegations knowing they were false or with reckless disregard for the truth. And basically, the judge says here that uh, he did not meet that bar. Right. So it's probably meaningful this is in federal court. So there's a doctrine in federal courts in motions to dismiss that a complaint has to allege facts that make the legal theory plausible. So you can't just say uh, they acted with actual malice. You can't just say in a conclusory fashion they knew that these women were lying or they deliberately looked aside from evidence that they were lying. You have to offer facts. That's called the Twombly Iqbal doctrine to completely unpronounceable, obscure Supreme Court <laughs> cases. Um, and what the judge said here in a very careful opinion was that really all Portnoy was doing, uh, Portnoy's complaint, if you will, was that simply a uh, conclusory statement that he didn't do these things, the women were lying, and that the defendant's knew that or or recklessly looked away from it. But the judge points out that that's just conclusory. He also alleges a theory. He contends that there was some sort of financial motive here, that basically they're doing this to sell subscriptions. They timed the release of these stories right. to be keyed to when the parent company of Barstool Sports was issuing its uh, uh, its earnings report. Basically, there, there's this innuendo suggesting that they, you know, that they had this ulterior motive. What the judge says correctly is that um, – Actual malice uh, for constitutional purposes is not animus. It's not we don't like Dave Portnoy. A number of people don't like Dave Portnoy. And, and that's not the same as knowing that what you're saying about him is false. It's OK to say true things about someone uh, because you hate them. That doesn't make it actual malice. Same with having a financial incentive. Uh, you know, newspapers, uh, all sorts of publications are allowed to have a financial motive to pursue a big story because it's going to get a lot of attention. That also doesn't make it actual malice. What he says is that a lot of the things that Portnoy admitted in the complaint and in the course of the case, supports the idea that the defendants were not acting with knowledge of falsity or with actual malice. He doesn't dispute he had sex with the women, that he filmed them, uh, that one talked about injuring a rib during sex, and he does not allege any facts that suggests that their stories were facially implausible to these reporters. Uh, and he confirms that these journalists investigated for months, that they reached out to him for comment from him in advance about these allegations. Um, they requested an interview. They sought comment before publishing the story. Uh, they linked in the story to his lawyer's statement in denial. And just saying in response to it, it's all fabricated and I allege that you knew it was fabricated is not enough. They have to allege some plausible facts that would suggest that. For instance, if he had alleged they got anonymous sources, but in fact, you know, anonymous sources didn't exist. They made them up. That might be the sort of thing that's a specific fact. Or, you know, they, they ignored... These three things that I told them that showed logically that the victims must have been lying because I wasn't, you know, in America at that time or something like that. Uh, but he didn't do any of that. He just went with a very broad strokes. This isn't true. And that's not enough under the you know requirement that you make plausible factual allegations. So he loses and he loses big very early on. One of the things that when you're a reporter and you go through legal training, 
some, sometimes people have this misconception that if you report, you know, somebody, person X alleges that person Y did this thing, that, that you're off scot-free on any sort of defamation issue, that because you you reported that person X said it, if it's true that person X said it, then your statement is true and you can't be liable for defamation. And that's not quite right. As discussed in here, if you can show actual malice, if you can show that, you know, person X said this, but you had lots of good reasons to believe person X was lying and you didn't report that, you just went and, and reported their their allegation, you could be on the hook for, for defamation there. And so Insider cleared that bar here. In theory, Portnoy could bring suit against the actual sources for this story, the women who, who spoke with Insider, and then there would be a sort of a separate inquiry uh, into whether they intentionally made false statements about him. But in any case, Insider would be off the hook because they, in reporting and treating as credible those allegations, they they did not act recklessly and that they did not – or he, he is not alleged that they acted recklessly. Exactly. What, what this is really about, I think, and why it's really significant is it's about how far you can push a defamation lawsuit, which is extremely expensive and stressful and uh, a huge deterrent to good reporting, how far you can push it without any specific facts. So this kind of shows that at least in this court, you weren't able just to come in and just sort of bullshit your way through it and claim without any specific facts, oh, they knew it was false. Uh, and the judge is going to throw it out at the motion to dismiss stage, which is huge in terms of reducing the the harassing and deterrent factor of filing a lawsuit. To compare this to some other suits where media outlets either got in more trouble or, or could have gotten in more trouble, everybody remembers the the Rolling Stone story, a rape on campus, alleging a gang rape at UVA uh, that turned out to have been fabricated. And there was a, a successful lawsuit brought against both the magazine and the reporter who wrote that story. And in that instance, the, the people who were accused implicitly of that rape, they weren't named, but there were identifying details such that it was possible for someone to be a plaintiff in that suit. Basically, Basically, they were not public figures, and so the the bar that the publication needed to clear to avoid defamation liability was higher. Is one factor, right? So the the, the plaintiffs were able to succeed by showing a, a lot lower, showing negligence in the reporting, and the plaintiffs were able to articulate a lot more specific things that the reporter did and didn't do that suggested deliberately looking aside in the face of indications that the story wasn't true. And then another set of lawsuits that we've talked a lot about are these lawsuits brought against Fox News and various Fox News personalities by Dominion Voting Systems and Smartmatic. And so Dominion and Smartmatic, we think, are probably public figures for the purpose of that lawsuit. I think almost certainly, yes. Yeah. But so... What about those lawsuits? What's the difference there that would suggest that there, that it would be possible to prove actual malice in those cases? Well, I think there, what they've done successfully in resisting motions to dismiss so far is they drafted their complaints carefully to lay out all the facts that were broadly distributed in the no news showing that this stuff was ridiculous and showing that uh, you know they had evidence in front of them that it was ridiculous and that the people they were quoting and relying on, you know, the Sidney Powells and Rudy Giuliani's, uh, were saying things that were obviously untrue based on facts they had right in front of them. And so those have not turned as much legally on whether or not those companies sufficiently alleged 
actual malice. It's more been an assessment of whether or not they've actually alleged that these were statements of fact as opposed to commentary and opinion and that type of thing. Uh, but they are well represented and they have pretty much an ideal set of facts in terms of the bad behavior. So that's why they're successful. Let's finish this out on the West Coast in California. Elon Musk, new owner of Twitter, chief twit, uh, very busy uh, on top of the other large and complicated companies that he also, at least in theory, runs. So one of the problems since he has come in, well, first of all, it's it's a bad time to own a social media company in general. The advertising market is not in good shape. Uh, and so people may be looking for reasons to pull advertising budget out of certain sites. And at that time, Elon Musk comes in and is very controversial and makes certain controversial statements. And there is an organized pressure campaign by various liberal groups trying to get advertisers to either pull their advertising from Twitter or to put pressure on Twitter to implement or maintain certain policies uh, if they are going to continue advertising there. And Elon Musk has, has now alleged on Twitter that some of those parties are engaged in tortious interference with Twitter's business. So what is tortious interference? So tortious interference is a set of circumstances where if you interfere with someone else's contractual relationship, you can be held liable for it. And, you know, historical legal legend is that the, the origins of this are when uh, rich people would steal each other's cooks uh, by offering them more money to ditch Lady Harrington Fisk and go over to uh, his lordship, the Duke of whatever, and that it was, you know, a tort to go in and get someone to break their contract with that person so they'd come in contract with you for some reason. Uh, whether or not that historical bit is true, it represents the core of the tort, which is deliberately for your own interests interfering with a contractual relationship, a business relationship between people. But as you can probably expect, when you have a situation like this, there are First Amendment implications. And so the Supreme Court has said pretty clearly in a case involving boycotts by the NAACP that boycott activity, expressive First Amendment activity, is protected and the tortious interference set of torts can't be used to stop that. So it was uh, NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware, where you know various businesses were suing the NAACP for organizing boycotts. And there was a lot of, of difficult facts in the case. But the core part that the Supreme Court agreed on uh, unanimously was that when you've got nonviolent speech organizing boycotts to pursue a social end, uh, then that is protected by the First Amendment and you can't use common law torts against it. And let's also just point out that every indication is it's nonsense anyway. It, it, there seem to be some of the people who were at these advertiser meetings uh, in which Elon Musk participated, came out and said, you know, actually, we, we expressed concerns to you and, you know, you acted like a nut and that's why we didn't put in money. And so it's not at all clear they're doing it out of some sort of uh, pressure from liberal groups as opposed to this seems like an extremely volatile situation being governed by someone who seems a little out of his depth uh, as to how to run this company. And it doesn't seem like a good risk for our money. And it doesn't seem like a thing we want our brand associated with. And again, at a time when brands might already be thinking about cutting back on their advertising budgets for entirely unrelated reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Okay, I think we can leave that there. That's enough serious trouble for this week. Uh, Tell us what you think of the episode. Send us any questions you have about what we've discussed here or other serious trouble that interests you. If you have those questions, I would encourage you to send them to us by email. And Ken will tell you what email address you can send those to. That is ricohotline at serioustrouble.show. Yes, in this instance, it is Rico. It's Rico. Wow. Yes, at Rico Hotline. The Rico Hotline is Rico. Yes. So that we're going to be indicted? If I'm lucky. <laughs> you can also join the conversation about this episode and more at SeriousTrouble.show. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way soon. <laughs>